Our Father, we do thank you for your many graces to us. Do thank you that you've saved us through your Son and that you have made us your treasured possession through him. Lord, I do pray that indeed tonight we would build our life upon your love or your rock because it is a firm foundation. I pray, Lord, that we would sort out our priorities and that we would be about your kingdom and your mission rather than our own agenda. And this we do pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you were to do a Google search online, of course, and you were to do a Google search of priorities in life, you'd come across a broad spectrum of articles that will tell you how you can improve or you can be able to figure out what your priorities in life are. Now, I think some of these articles are very helpful. They give you tips on how you can figure those things out. But, but I think one of the most helpful things that I actually find a little bit fun is what you call a value test or priority test. See, a priority test gives you a number of questions, and these questions help you figure out what your priorities are. Now, like I said, these questions are a little bit fun, so I would like a little bit of participation from you guys. I'm just going to give you four of these questions. Here's the first one. Let's say you get to choose between two jobs, one where you earn around 150000 let's say dollars, because dollars is a lot, dollars, and you're in a high position in your job, but you travel a lot. Or you've got this job, the second job, where you get $40,000 a year, in a low position, and you don't travel a lot. Which one would you go for? Second job, because you can't be away from your family? Would you take the second job because you can't be away from your friends? The first job because your spouse or your boss or your boyfriend will travel with you wherever you go? Or your first job? I mean, that's a lot of money. Or the first job because it's a higher position. Which one would you choose? Okay. okay. Here's another one. You have two kids. And then there's flooding. And there's a boat nearby. The boats can only take two people. Now, this is a simple but, uh, what's the word? Uh, unexpected, you say, situation. You've got the boat. What would you do in this situation? Would you throw both your kids into the boat and kiss them and tell them you love them? Or would you put the child that you think is the smartest and leave the other while you go in the boat? <laughs> would you put the child that... Is your spouse's favorite? Or would you put the child that you think is going to be successful? Or would you pick the child that you think that you love and jump in, in the boat with them? What would you do? Now, the smiles among a lot of the parents here make me wonder. Now, if, if you guys have met my boys, you would understand when I say I would leave both of them. <laughs> Here's the third one. What would you be doing in the last seconds of your life? Would you be holding a child, your mom or your dad? Or would you be spending your money? Would you be hugging friends? Would you be in the the hands of a loved one, a spouse, a girlfriend or a boyfriend? Now, this one is a little bit naughty, this last one. Or would you be giving your boss the finger? 
Now, can you say such things at church? Now, now because my boss is here, I, I, anyway, let me stop. Let's move on to the next one. Here's the fourth one. What would you do if you were in this situation? There's a baby crying, one, two, the clothes hanging outside and it starts raining. There's water that's running from the tap in the bathroom. And there's a doorbell that's ringing and there's a phone that's ringing. Which one would you answer first? Water. Now, now I know some of you are thinking, wait, wait, Reggie, I can actually overcome this. I can pick up the phone while picking up the child and try and keep the child quiet while I'm on the phone. And then while I'm working my way to the bathroom, I'll scream to the person at the door, hey, the door is open, just get my clothes outside. And then the child will be quiet by then, and then I'll clean up the bathroom. You see, all of these scenarios, the aim is to show us what you and I prioritize. It shows us what we value. Do we value friends, family, relationships, staff, wealth, a career, or a job? What do we value? What is your value in life? Where do you put your priorities? Now, I'm sure you have heard people say, wherever your priorities or your values are, that's where your heart is. Now, I wonder if God tonight were to give us a value test or a priority test, what would the results be? Would God and his agenda be what's dominant in our lives? Would God be first in our lives? So tonight, Hegai will challenge us to consider our priorities in relation to God and his agenda. So you and I, all throughout this series, will continually have to introspect and ask ourselves, what am I building? What am I saying yes to at the expense of saying no to God? What consumes my time, my passions, my affections, and my ambitions? Is it God and his agenda? Or is it my agenda? My personal life, my family, my goals, and my career. I I think the words, I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul, would apply to most of us tonight, if we were to be honest. Very Very often life is about our own agenda instead of God's agenda. And so as always, you and I need to hear this plea. We need to hear this call that Haggai brings before the people of God. But before we go into our passage, let me give us a little bit of context. We, we, we watched the video a bit earlier to help us with that. But let me just give us a little bit more to understand who this Haggai is and the message that he brings and where it fits in the storyline of God's redemption in history. See, I think it is important to do this so that you and I are in the same WhatsApp group, as people say. Uh, For those who are a little bit grayer among us, so that I know that I'm preaching to the choir. See, what we saw in the video is that God's people for a period of 70 years, 60 to 70 years, were in exile because they were disobedient. God had called them to live a certain way, but they did not listen. That the prophets who came to them numerous times and warned them and said, because of your disobedience, you guys would receive God's curses for your disobedience. The prophets over and again warned them. Isaiah, Habakkuk, Jeremiah warned the people. So if you read two kings from chapter 11 all the way up to chapter 25, you will see the prophets calling God's people, God's leaders, God's people to come back to God. But the people decide not to listen. 
However, something that you and I would also see, something that the prophets also point out, is that God would use this captivity, God would use this exile in order to purify, in order to refine his people. And that God would bring back to the promised land a special and faithful people, a remnant, a remaining, a small group, that he would bring back with them so that he would restore the temple in Jerusalem. So that he would use them to become a beacon of light of God's kingdom to the world once again. See, God would bless his people. And through his people, the rest of the world would be blessed. From Jerusalem would flow blessing to the rest of the world. Now listen to some of the the words that the prophet said to God's people. These are some of the words. Listen to this. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return. And come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy. And sorrow and sighing shall flee away. They shall come and sing aloud over the goodness of the Lord. Over the grain, the wine, the oil. And over the the young flock and the herd. And they shall languish no more. Now, if you were at Imbizo, you would remember that we spoke about wine representing the fulfillment of God's kingdom or God's blessing. And here, this is what we see. Then the young shall rejoice in the dance. The young men and old men shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. Behold, I will restore the fortunes of the tents of Jacob. That's Israel. And have, and have compassion on his dwellings. The city shall be rebuilt on its molds. And the palace or the temple shall stand where it used to be. God says, I will give Jerusalem a river of peace and prosperity. The wealth of the nations will flow to her. And the nations will come to your light. And the kings to the brightness of your rising. See, all the nations will gather in Jerusalem to honor the name of the Lord. Now you can imagine these, this remnant people, this remaining people who are coming back to the promised land. You can imagine them riding on the waves of these prophetic words, dreaming and yearning of the remarkable and supernatural work that God was to do with and through them. You can imagine that. See, moreover, they, they would have been confident of God's blessing because of this. See, the king of Persia, Cyrus, did not just give them a decree to go back home. But this is what he also said. You can take my credit card. You can get anything you need to be able to rebuild the temple. Take anything that you want and just put it on my name. Put it on my tab. So that you guys will be able to build the temple of God. So that you'll be able to rebuild Jerusalem and the nation of God. And moreover, he says, take back anything else that was taken from you, anything else that was taken from the temple, and that you guys would return back with it. See, God's people would have been confident right here that God is with them. They would have been confident that God's blessing was upon them as they were returning to the promised land. And in Ezra chapter 4, we are told that when the people returned Ezra chapter 1 to chapter 4, I mean, we are told that when the people returned to Jerusalem, they immediately started building, building the temple and the city and the city walls. 
See, the theme song that was playing in that background was Bob the Builder. (laughs) They got back to the city and they started rebuilding the temple. They started rebuilding the city and the city walls. But not too long after that, they faced opposition. And you see, because of the opposition, they stopped building. And for 16 to 20 years, there was no building of the temple. The temple still lay in ruins. And so God raises up a prophet called Haggai. There's another prophet that God raises called Zechariah. But we're looking at Haggai today. He raises up this prophet called Haggai to take this message, to take a message to his people. A message that I think speaks to God's people for all time. A message to God's people who are caught in between the prophetic promises of God's kingdom and the harsh realities of life. Now that I've given you that background, let's turn to that passage and hear what this message that Haggai brought to the people is. Now now tonight we we will skip verse 1. The reason why we will skip verse 1 is because when we do the, first, the fourth talk, I will come back to that very verse. But what happens in verse 1 is we see that Haggai comes before the leaders. You see the leader, one of the leaders, Zerubbabel, who is a governor, and Joshua, who is a high priest. So he brings the message to the leaders so that the leaders would take the message to God's people. Now let's read verse 2 to verse 4 together. And thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of, the, of Haggai the prophet. Is it time for you yourself to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? This evening, this evening we will have two points. The first point is, comes from the very passage, very, very verses we just read. It's not yet time. The second point, we'll come to it a bit later. The second point will be, consider your ways. Now this is the first point. It is not yet time from verses 2 to verse 4. I don't know if you noticed as we read the passage how God refers to the people. He says, these people... Now, now that's language that is, that is rather distancing, don't you think? God says, these people. Hashtag you people. <laughs> See, God is, distance, is distancing himself from his people. He's disowning them. He's angry because of their disobedience. Their misaligned priorities. See, before the exile, there was another prophet who came before the people of God and said to them, this is what God says to them because of their disobedience. God says to them, not my people, not not my treasured position, not my vineyard, not my people, lo ami. Now you wonder whether, as you hear this word, these people, that one should be anticipating another exile. See, for the people, it would have made sense to stop the work of building. After all, they were facing opposition. There were people that came and opposed them in order that they would stop the work that they had started doing. 
But you see, God through Haggai reveals that it is more than just the opposition that has gotten them to stop the work of building. See, the reason why they've stopped building is because their priorities are misaligned. It's no longer about God's agenda. It's now about their own agenda. They've started building their own kingdoms instead of building God's kingdom. Listen to their motto in that verse that we read. The time has not yet come to build the house of the Lord. It's not yet time to be about the things of God. An opportune time or moment will come one day when there's no longer opposition. Then we will consider. Now I think those excuses or what they're saying here sounds rather familiar, doesn't it? So, so it's not like they're saying to God, no, we, we won't get involved in the work of rebuilding your temple. Rather, what they're saying is, we, we, we will get involved eventually. When we are no longer busy. When we're no longer occupied. One day is one day. Like I said, these excuses are, too, are all too familiar to us. Let me give you some of the excuses that you and I make in order not to be involved in God's work, whether it's in the church or in the work of, dis, of making disciples who make disciples or standing for Jesus in the workplace. These are the excuses that you and I make. Let's see if you identify with any of these. We'll go to church when the kids get older. We'll be more active in the church. Or I'll be more active in the church. When things at work slow down. Now I understand things do get rather hectic at work. This is the other one. We'll give more when we get some of these bills paid off. And some of these things we have bought to impress people that we do not like. I'll read my Bible when I have a little bit more time. Things are a bit hectic at the moment. I'll pray more, but I just doze off. I forget to. I'll join a life group or style, the young adults, when I find one that I like. When I find one where I'm comfortable to be a family of servants on mission. Someone else would do it. I mean, we, we pay the guys at the church to do the work. Shouldn't it be they, they, they the ones who do the work of making disciples? Oh, I think the church should be more inward looking at the moment. Just considering the, 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 the current economic climate, I think we shouldn't be doing a lot of missions. This is my favorite. We need to pray about it some more. <laughs> Now, there's nothing wrong with praying. We should be praying before, before we get involved in God's work. But I think you and I often tend to use these things as an excuse. See, we over-spiritualize things and say, the time has not yet come. Somehow we think God is honored or impressed by our good intentions, which we don't follow up with, with our actions. See, you and I tend to make the same excuses as these people. We don't have our priorities right. And very often, we prioritize our own agenda instead of God's agenda. And so God responds to them. And this is what he says to them. This is what God says to them. Let's read verse 4, verse 3 and 4 together. 
It says, it says, then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lay in ruins? Listen to the emphasis from, from Haggai. Paneled houses. Now, there's a reason why he uses that word. There's a reason why he uses that word there, paneled houses. Now, what is a paneled house? See, at this time, a paneled house would be a luxury house. See, this house is a house that would be the walls of the house and the roof, or you'd say the ceiling of the house, would be made from cedar wood. Now, cedar wood was expensive and scarce wood. In order for you to be able to get this wood, you would need to go to great lengths. Either you would have to go up to the mountains or the mountain range of Lebanon in order to be able to get it, or you'd pay an exorbitant amount for someone who's gone there for you to get this wood. Now, now God is not necessarily against expensive mansions, a house in Stained City, waterfall, midstream. See, the, the panel houses showed or reflected that the people actually had the resources and time to build God's house, to be about God's kingdom, to be about God and his mission. But that wasn't their priority. They were concerned about building their own kingdoms. Life was about their own agenda instead of God's agenda. Now, living in an expensive home does not necessarily mean that you are about your own agenda. And living in an inexpensive home does not necessarily mean you are about God's agenda. God points this out here as a reflection of their priorities. So listen to these words from one of our modern, pre- modern day preachers about our priorities. He says, his name is John Piper. One of the great uses of Twitter and Facebook will be to prove at the last day that prayerlessness was not because of a lack of time. Prayerlessness, being involved in God's kingdom, us giving our resources, our time, and our all in order to be involved in building God's kingdom. At the end of it all, it will be revealed that we actually did have time, but did not prioritize God's kingdom. See, see you and I find time and resources for the things that we consider to be important. We find time for gym. We find time to binge watch a series. We actually wake up in the wee hours of the morning to watch. And we find time to study further and still have a social life outside of that. So we make time and give up resources for the things that matter to us. We're very concerned about our own comforts, whether it's material, financial, or relational. But we can't find time or resources for God's kingdom. And so this message is for us as well this evening. Now, I'm not saying all of this to make you feel guilty, but perhaps some of us tonight need to feel guilty. But all of this, but all of us tonight, in one way or another, need to introspect and examine our priorities and ask ourselves, what are you building? What are you saying yes to at the expense of saying no to God? I want you to note the sarcasm that God uses in that passage. You, you say you don't have time to be about God's kingdom, and yet, and yet you have time for this. 
Now, I, I tried practicing sarcasm the whole week, and it's just not been working. But, but you see what God is pointing them out to here. Now, I must clarify something. When the Bible says we should put God first, we should make God our priority, it's not speaking about some kind of hierarchy. It's not. One of the, one of the greatest perhaps. One of the best books I've read is by a guy called Craig Hamilton. Now, he makes you understand how it looks like to have God as priority in your life. He says, having God as priority in your life is not putting God first on the podium. And he's got two other things, or many other things that he's competing, competing with. It's not like that. But he gives us this picture. That what you have is you have a pond that is filled with lily pads. Lily pad is the stuff that you always see frogs in. Filled with lily pads. And right at the center of the pond is a rock that is immovable. And you see some of the lily pads will be closer sometimes to the rock. Some will be further. And what he points out in the book is you and I, as we serve God, as we have God as the center of our lives, will have some things that we will sometimes give the most of our time or resources. And we'll have things that we give less. But in everything that we do, in every decision that we make, we will be motivated by this rock that stands at the center. We will make decisions based on God and his agenda, based on God and his kingdom. You and I will be thinking about God and his mission. That's what will be at the center of our lives. So this evening, let me ask you, who's the center of your priorities? Think about that as we move to our second point. Our second point is consider your ways. And I want us to read from verse 5 to verse 11. Verse 5. Now therefore, now therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have fear. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why declares the Lord of hosts? Because my house that lies, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the, dra- on the grain, the new wine, and the oil, and on what the ground brings forth on men and beast, and all their labors. Now you'd have noted the repeated phrase there in verse 5 and verse 7. Consider your ways, God says to his people. He calls his people to do two things in this, in by calling them to consider. Calling them to say, consider your ways. 
See, the first thing that he wants them to consider is in verse 5 as we see there. God says, consider that your ways. He calls them to look inward and look around them and tell them and tell him what they have examined, what they see. So when you read verse 5 to verse 7 and verse 9 to 11, you will see two things. And one is this. All their labors did not amount to much. And two, even if it did, even if they harvested, even if they ate and drank and got paid, they were never satisfied. The joy was momentary. Now, I don't know if you see who has brought this upon them. It is God. It is his judgment for their disobedience. The Israelites were experiencing economic and political turmoil because of God. If you remember Deuteronomy 28, speaks about curses for disobedience. God has cursed their labors. Now I know Deuteronomy 28 is a favorite passage for a lot of people. I am blessed in the country and I'm blessed in the city. I'm blessed going in and I'm blessed going out. I'm the head and not the tail. Amen. But Deuteronomy 28 is not primarily written to us. See, see, this was a word that was given to a people that were preparing to enter the promised land. And so as you and I read it, we can't read it with the same eyes that they did. You and I have got to read it in the light of the New Testament. So we can't apply it necessarily in the same way. But there's still a principle that you and I can learn. And this is the principle that God wants his people to know. That God is holy. He is holy and he will not compete with anything else in your life. Seek first his kingdom and his, and his righteousness. And he will look after you. But if you make him compete with different things in your life. Hebrews chapter 12 we are told. What he does is he disciplines us. He disciplines us when we, when we go astray. He disciplines us by breaking us tenderly to realize that we are not living as he has called us to. So the New Testament is quite clear. If you and I persistently pursue something, whether it's material or financial or relational, at the expense of God, eventually God will hand us over to this very thing we think will give us joy. And then at the end, you and I will realize that it doesn't give us the joy we thought it would. You get the car. Why aren't you happy? You've gotten the spouse that you've wanted. Why aren't you happy? You've gotten the job. Why aren't you happy? See, the dilemma of the Christian is this. That you and I want the world, but Jesus says to us, no, that won't satisfy you. It is only me and my mission and my purpose they can satisfy you. See, sometimes some of the heartache and some of the lack of satisfaction we experience in our own life is because we have misaligned priorities. We've sought for satisfaction in everything else but God. We've made life about our own agenda instead of God's agenda. One author once said, Our hearts are restless. Our hearts find satisfaction in nothing else. 
until they find rest in you. And you see, God's people ought to see that now. This is what God wants them to see. That they will find satisfaction, they will find blessing when they make life about him and his kingdom. And so again tonight, what are you building? In verse 7, he calls them again to consider their ways. And this time God actually says to them, go get wood from the mountain and start building the temple or resume building the temple. God gives them instruction on how to do it. Now, the significance of the temple for these people would have been that the temple represents God's presence. It is the place where they go to also give their sacrifices. Now, give us more detail on the temple next week when we look at chapter 2. But what God is calling them to here is to be about his mission. And you see, one of the encouraging things about this book is that the people actually respond. They respond. See, unlike the previous generations, the generations that were led into exile, this generation puts up their hand and says, God, we want to be about the things of your kingdom. We want to be about you and your mission. We want to be about you and your agenda. And so 23 days later, they resumed building the temple. That's verse 12 to verse 15. See, despite the opposition, They continued. And I believe God, in every generation, looks for men and women who will put up their hands and say, God, I want to be about the work that you are doing. I want to be about the work that you are doing to transform families, to transform communities, to transform cities through making disciples who make disciples. I want to be about that, God. Now let me ask you this tonight. Will you be among those people who put up their hands? Will you join Zerubbabel and Joshua and say, God, we want to be about you and your kingdom? Will you say, as we have sung a bit earlier, I will build my life upon your word, your love. It is a a firm foundation. Open up my eyes in wonder and show me who you are and fill me with your heart, fill me with your passion, your kingdom and lead me in love to those around me so that I may take your message of making disciples who make disciples. See, as we approach our 25th anniversary, my hope and prayer is that we would have some young adults and students who would say, we're putting up our hands. We've seen the older generation that has led us in this church for 25 years faithfully. We want to be the next generation that will step into what God has for us for this next 25 years. Now, young adults, students, will you put up your hand and say, God, I want to be about you and your kingdom. See, I believe that if God's people would set their faces on him, and if their priority is right, God will do a great work among them. God will bring a renewal, a revival, a restoration in our time. I believe that. Let me pray for us. Just hold. I remembered one thing before I, I, I pray. 
A bit earlier, I spoke to one of the leaders from Style. I called the person to just get clarity on whether I could say this, and she agreed. This past week, one of our leaders of Style ran out of our meeting, and it was a bit strange for us that she did that. A little bit later, when I found out about the story of what's going on in her life, I was encouraged to realize that this young lady, despite opposition, despite persecution she faces at work, she had actually decided, she has put her hand up and said, I'll stand for Jesus, and I'll stand for his kingdom. So although this week was a difficult week for her, she broke down when she walked out of that meeting. I was encouraged to hear that, to hear that there are people in our church who are saying that. I want to be about you and your kingdom, God. Let me pray. Dear Lord, would you indeed help us to be about you and your kingdom? Would you help us to have our priorities aligned, to realize that you have called us to go and make disciples of all nations? You've called us to build your kingdom as you called your people here to build the temple. Lord, would you help us as we go through this series that indeed our priorities will be set right and that we would want to live to see you bring a revival in our time. In Jesus' name, amen.